The following Access Utah program was first broadcast in March of this year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dr. Ann Spurry treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya over the span of 50 years as a member of the renowned Flying Doctor Service and earned herself the cherished nickname Mama Doctari or Mother Doctor from the people of Kenya. Yet few knew what drove her from post-World War II Europe to Africa. In his book, In Full Flight, John Hemingway reveals Dr. Spurry's past, a personal history marked by rebellion, submission, and decisions that earned her another nickname, this one sinister, working as a so-called doctor in a Nazi concentration camp. In the book, Hemingway explores the question of whether it's possible to rewrite one's troubled past by doing good in the present. And he takes readers on a remarkable journey across a haunting African landscape into a dramatic life punctuated by both courage and weakness and driven by a powerful need to atone. Booklist calls the book an exceptionally compelling contemplation on life's meaning, the nature of humanity, and whether atonement is possible. John Hemingway is author and award-winning filmmaker. He's produced and written more than 200 documentaries on subjects as varied as travel, brain science, evolution, natural history. He's won two Emmys, two Peabody Awards, a DuPont Columbia Award. Most recently is known for his exposés of the illicit ivory trade. In Full Flight is his sixth book. We reach him, uh, I believe it's home in Montana. John Hemingway, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Tom. So, so uh, Bozeman, I believe. Yes. It's your, your home base. And uh, congratulations. I believe you uh, recently received an uh, honorary doctorate from Montana State University. Oh, thank you. Uh, so t- tell us a little bit, uh, how, how did you meet? Uh, by the way, am I saying your name correctly, Spurry? Uh, that- you're actually doing it um, totally correct. Most oh. people don't, don't go to that trouble. And uh, so well done. Oh, okay, I, I, I got it. I was trying to mimic you from your book trailer, so I tried to, tried to do my best. Uh, so uh, Dr. Spurry, renowned in Africa, uh, part of the, the famous Flying Doctors Service, decades of, of incredible service to rural Kenya. Uh, how did you meet her? It, was, uh, it started about 1979 when I started hearing about her. Um, she, um, I was a uh, freelance journalist based um, in and out of uh, Nairobi. And um, I, um, I was always looking for uh, great characters. And here is this woman who uh, sort of followed her own gut, and she um, uh, did extraordinarily brave things, flying into uh, terrifying little strips, and uh, and then uh, working on a tight schedule, and, and people would, uh, you know, naked warriors would be standing under thorn trees waiting for her uh, with their families, and they had a variety of ailments, and she would doctor them at um, at ma- max speed. And um, I kept hearing about this. She was a character. She was gruff. She was outspoken. Perfect. The perfect kind of uh, uh, person I wanted to meet and uh, and write about. <clears throat> she wouldn't let me get to her um, at first, and finally, in March of 1980, um, I scored an interview with her, and in her uh, tiny little office at, at the airport, um, Wilson Airport at, in Nairobi, and she said, okay, she didn't want to hear any more of my stuff. She said, if you're at my airplane at 8 in the morning, I'll take you, um, I'll take you up into the northern frontier. And so that's how it began, and I spent five days with her, incredible days. Um, I was virtually um, <clears throat> dragooned into being her, uh, um, her assistant, carrying her, her Gladstone bag and doing whatever she wanted to, setting up the 
card table under a, a thorn tree, and just basically following her around, and um, you know, trying uh, trying to take notes as I went, and it was an extraordinary five days, and it it um, it it moved me so much that um, I not only wrote an article about her, uh, but um, I wrote other pieces about her, made films about her, and, uh, you know, and I just fell for her in every way. She became a, um, a pretty darn good friend. She was, uh, you, you've talked about how she's uh, amazing as a diagnostician, very quick, you know, quick triage, and uh, she was able to treat a lot of patients quickly. I, there were so many, I mean, you know, millions in her lifetime that she treated. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, I call it battlefield medicine. Uh, she could, um, and, and it's, it's not me making these, uh, these, these calls here. Um, I interviewed a ton of other doctors who said that her output was breathtaking. Um, she would, you know, see 140 people virtually in the morning, and uh, she would reach conclusions um, at lightning speed. And, and you know, I, I can't say whether they're all dead accurate, but according to her peers, um, she was more often right than wrong. And um, and when she didn't know her stuff, she and, and it was over her head, she would put that person in the back of her airplane and take that person to um, the local uh, hospital or even to Nairobi. So it was just an amazing feat. Um, and even to this day when I asked other doctors about her output, and we, and we think that uh, essentially during her career, 45 years in the air working a, um, as a flying doctor, she treated well over a million patients. And at the, at the coast alone, from between uh, the island of Lamu and the Somali border, uh, she personally um, uh, cured the, that area of the coast of polio uh, through her injections. Um, she had a special warm spot in our heart for kids and um and she would um just inject one after the other after the other after the other it was just amazing sight and uh she i think she um um uh she she treated um you know 80,000 kids along the coast in in her lifetime it's an extraordinary feat tell me a little bit more about her about her personality you say she was gruff she was a personality she was a character yeah she was, um, uh, and first of all, I mean, she didn't want to talk to me. She said, I, I really have nothing to say to journalists. That's how it began. Uh, but in fact, she had a lot to say to journalists. And um, <clears throat> she was, she was uh, very warm um, after a time. Um, as a doctor, she had no bedside manner whatsoever. Uh, but in the evening when you... Uh, over a bottle of wine, uh, she would open up and she would tell lovely stories about her adventures in Africa. Um, there was, however, uh, and, and you know, and we, I, I thought I was a bit of an adventurer myself, and she certainly was. So we we would trade these adventure stories, and that she really liked, and that was the sort of the core of our friendship. But there was one area. That was a no-fly zone, and that was uh, World War II. Anything related to World War II, uh, she would stop you dead in your tracks 
don't go there. And you you tried a few times, right? But she she'd always shut you down. I tried oh well over five times, um, once on camera, in fact, and um, and every time she would say, "No, we're not going to talk about it." I'd heard rumors about this and that, um, but I I knew that she was taken prisoner. Uh, I, I knew this. I knew that she had been in the French Resistance, um, and that she had been um, done extraordinary brave things. Um, you know, bringing in British pilots into Paris um, and setting them up with their radios, and 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 really, um, uh, it, her her network was fantastic over a period of about three months. She was caught by the Germans. I knew that, and she was taken to what I believed was a concentration camp. That's where it got muddy. But I always thought that her reticence in talking about this was because it was so sensitive uh, that she had been um, a, you know, mutilated or tortured or something by, by the Nazis. I, I was sure of that, and that's why she was um, being so protective of her, of her past. And as book will describe i was completely wrong yeah this is i mean it raises a whole host of interesting questions one of which is do we how how well do we know each other you know this is an extraordinary example but uh i wonder if this makes you wonder about other friends and what their past might hold yeah well especially um in africa um she she virtually uh um i mean this book has just come out um it will have it, it is arriving now in Kenya. I'll deliver a few copies in a couple of weeks myself when I go out there. Um, it's going to um, uh, amaze some people. It's going to torture others, uh, those who counted themselves as really close friends. Essentially, no one in Kenya during her 50 years there uh, knew anything about this. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And... Um, and in, in one way, one way to look at it, and which brings it to almost contemporary issues, to the world of contemporary issues, is that it was uh, possibly the longest and most successful cover-up in the 20th century. Yeah, that's and, and that in itself must have taken a toll on on, on her. I guess to, to you know she. Uh, we'll get to the theme of atonement as, as well. Uh, so um, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to hear how you learned of this. I, I guess there must have been whisperings, rumblings, uh, I don't know, rumors, but but uh, we'll get into how, how you learned of uh, what actually happened in Ravensbrook and, and go from there. Uh, the book is a fascinating book, In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. The author is John Hemingway. He joins us from uh, Bozeman, Montana. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie and restaurant reviews. Available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. It's said that prevention is the best cure, but predicting which diseases to prepare for and prevent is not an easy task and often requires attention to emerging diseases in domestic animals and wildlife. In the past 30 years, approximately 75% of new and emerging human diseases have been transmitted from animals. Scientists at Utah State University's Institute for Antiviral Research are working to understand how a number of viruses cause disease. 
an important step in finding ways to prevent their spread or develop cures. Ebola, West Nile, and Zika viruses, and some influenza viruses, are among the disease-causing agents they study that originated in animals, because boundaries between countries and species don't stop a virus. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. The following Access Utah program was first broadcast in March of this year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is John Hemingway, and we're talking about his new book, In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. It treats the story, a fascinating story, of Dr. Anne Spurry, who treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya over 50 years as a member of the renowned Flying Doctors Service. Uh, she learned how to fly a plane at age 45, earned herself the cherished nickname Mama Doctari, Mother Doctor from the people of Kenya. Yet few knew what drove her from post-World War II Europe to Africa. And now in the first uh, comprehensive account of her life, Dr. Sperry's revered selflessness gives way to a past marked by rebellion, submission, and personal decisions that uh, earned her another nickname. This one's sinister, working as a so-called doctor in a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, fascinating book. Uh, you can learn more um, at uh, Hemingway.net. And you can see the book trailer there as, uh, as well. Uh, with some footage of uh, Dr. Spurry. Um, so, John Hemingway, I don't know. What, do you, did you hear any rumors, any anything um, uh, about this dark past at her time in Ravensbrook, or, or did you learn this all after her death? Uh, essentially, I learned it after her death. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I, people do do uh, gossip, especially in, in, in places like Kenya, um, where there's a kind of a, a tight-knit um, expat community. But um, I didn't take any of that seriously. One year after her death, in the year 2000, I was down the coast, actually on my honeymoon, and I ran into Bernard Spurry, who was her nephew. And I said, Bernard, I want to write something about your aunt. I was such an admirer of her, and that I, I just think it's worthy of a book. Um, but, you know... She never told me about World War II, and I'm puzzled. Do you know anything about it? Uh, he said, well, no. Uh, essentially, no details. Uh, we've speculated, but nothing. The person who did know was my father. He knew everything, but he died one month before Anne did. Um, however, I inherited Anne's house, Anne's farmhouse in a place called Sabukia, and... Um, there was a huge safe there. When I opened the safe, there was a file on top, and the file said, do not open. Would you like to read it? Well, <laughs> boy. I opened the file, and on the top of it was a document that was headed CROWCAS, C-R-O-W-C-A-S-S, Central Registry of War Criminals. It was dated 1946, and it listed names by country, Germany, of course, France, Holland, and so forth. And there was one Swiss, Anne Spurry, wanted for crimes against humanity, including torture. That's where my, my search began. Now, her, her World War II story begins 
or at least includes um, great courage, right? She was a member of the resistance. Yes, uh, she was absolutely great, and I, I really, um, I delved into that, and I wanted to paint her in all her glory because uh, she had done some wonderful things in the French resistance. Um, she was devoted all her life to her brother. She had one sole brother; he was about six years older than her, and she uh, she loved him. She mimicked him. She just, you know, any time he would say, "Invest in this," she would do it. Um, and uh, but uh, in in the year 1943, uh, well, actually around Christmas 42, 43, um, he took her aside, and he said, "I don't know if you know, but I'm in the French." resistance and I'm in a uh, in a network and we're doing everything we can to uh, um, to sabotage German efforts in France she was living uh, at that time in 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 Paris right on the she had a beautiful apartment right on the edge of the Seine and uh, and and she said well if my brother's doing this I'll do it as well and she set off with incredible gusto uh, she would meet British operatives flying into these muddy fields outside of Paris. They would fly in in a little airplane called a Lysander, and she would meet them and deliver them to her apartment where they set up. And um, she had she had a network of friends and colleagues all over Paris who were virtually sabotaging Nazi efforts in it was occupied, as you know, at that time, and they did everything they could to thwart the Germans. She was a medical student at the time, and she was in Erold Hospital. And um, and in March of that year, um, her network was infiltrated by the by the Germans. And um, literally hours before she was going to flee to neutral Switzerland, um, she was caught by the Germans in the hospital and taken to a dreaded, dreaded place um, in Paris called the Rue de Sauce, uh, where uh, the Nazis tortured um, tortured um, members of the French resistance like her until they uh, confessed. Um, we don't know if she confessed. Uh, she was then taken to a prison called Fresnes, where she was for about nine months. There she stayed in Fresnes. And uh, and finally, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself. And finally, uh, she was transported along with hundreds and hundreds of other uh, prisoners um, by uh, a cattle train um, to um, to Germany, to a place um, um, which was um, a, a town called Furstenberg. It would have been in East Germany um, up until recently. Uh, uh, but it was um, it was in you know it was a German town um, south of Hamburg, and there she was marched along with these other women about two kilometers to this dreaded dreaded place called Ravensbrück. It was a concentration camp for women only. I believe the only one that was exclusively for women. 123 women went through it, and only 18,000 survived. Amazing. So, so one hundred twenty-three thousand and eighteen thousand survived. Yes. Yeah. Uh, had gas chambers there, right? So you the the. It it did. At the end of the war, 
Um, it had one gas chamber and two crematorium. At the end of the war, in April, uh, just before the um, Allies, the Russian troops came in and liberated uh, Ravensbrück, the Germans destroyed the gas chamber in in hopes that by destroying it, nobody would ever know. But, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. that's not the way history works. Yeah. Um, but they did leave the crematoriums, and I, um, uh, I've been and visit, visited those crematoriums and, and Ravensbrook itself and stood on the very block where Anne, um, where Anne lived. And um, it was one of the most chilling days of my life. So as I'm reading the story, I'm sure everyone, probably you yourself, um, you know, you, I kind of put myself in there. It's a very human story tested to the extremes, right? And I hope I would have been part of the French resistance. I don't know if I'd had the courage. I don't know. I suppose, you know, all of us have the uh, something in us that where we could have gone to the dark side. That's what happened to Anne Spurry, right? What 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 happened in Ravensburg? Well, um Anne uh, was, she lived in terror, as I would have, as we all would have, because uh, every, every day there were sort of summary executions. Um, and um, the Germans were extremely random in their selection of who they, they killed. And a lot of the prison guards were, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say were sadists, um, drunks, and... Um, you know, there was one story I I heard from a contemporary of Anne's um, that there was one guy who had who um, battered eighteen different Russian women and killing every single one, <clears throat> every single one of them with his fists. Um, so it was a terrifying, terrifying time, and Anne was there uh, from that uh, from about March of nineteen forty four all the way until April of 1945. And most of that time, she hid out. She didn't um, cause... Very few people noticed her. She was still a medical student. She helped as best she could. And, in fact, towards the end, she did some really remarkably brave things, um, helping others. However, there was a period from uh, the end of August... 1944, right up until the end of the year, beginning of 1945, when everything changed. And the name of that change was Block 10. It was a block for um, for tuberculars and for lunatics. And it was into that block that um, Anne was transferred. And the block elder of Block 10 was a woman called Carmen Mori, arguably one of the most astoundingly duplicitous, uh, venomous, and yet seductive women of virtually all time. I mean, she, she's uh, uh, absolutely extraordinary. Unfortunately, there's only one book written about her, um, about her exclusively, and it's in, it's, it was published in, in Switzerland in German. However, um, um, I've, I've been able, I've, I've talked to the biographer, I've talked to members of the family, and, and you know, there's a huge amount of testimony. In any case, Anne fell under Carmen Mori's influence during those four months in Block 10. 
Carmen Murray, did, did one of her nicknames was the Black Angel, right? Uh, so, so the Black Angel, yes. And in in, in the end, Carmen Murray, uh, the I guess the War Crimes Tribunal sentenced her to death. She, uh, what was she accused of doing? Um, Maury was was accused of um, torture, of murder, and of selection for the gas chamber. Um, and um, during the um, after the war, um, she was found out, and she was imprisoned by the the British um, Army of Occupation. And um, during the um, and there was uh, there were a number of different trials. The most famous, obviously, is Nuremberg, but um, she was tried in in Hamburg, and that was equally at the time it was it was almost as famous. And um, she, along with um, fifteen others, um, uh, were were tried for um, you know serious crimes against humanity, and. She was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. And in 1947, I think it was March of that year, um, she um, committed suicide about two months, two weeks before her sentence was carried out. Mm. So, uh, yeah, notorious. And you say that uh, Anshbury fell under her spell. Did she participate with Maury in, in this, you know, this, these dark works of death? Well... I don't want to give away too much mm. of the book, um, but the point is um, uh, that that from testimony, and from testimony not only delivered in Hamburg in, in the war crimes trials, um, but I had the great good fortune of, uh, of meeting three remarkable ladies who had been in Ravensbrück during the same period of time as Anne, uh, two of them in Block 10. And um, and their testimony was absolutely chilling beyond belief. Uh, in answer to your question, um, Anne was, as she said in her own words, uh, in some of that testimony, she was bewitched by Carmen Mori. Hmm. And um, it was, and it, the, the, all the evidence points to her having been an absolute. Uh, co-conspirator in much of those crimes during that four-month period. Uh, <clears throat> now, Anne was not tried in Hamburg. Uh, she was uh, uh, the, the uh, attorney for Karen Mori begged her to come, uh, but she knew enough not to show up. And by, <clears throat> by that time, she was represented by, by counsel herself. Her Parents were wealthy people. Uh, they were uh, in textiles in uh, what is was known as Alsace in in France, um, a town called Moulouse, and um, and they mounted a, an extraordinarily vigorous defense um, uh, in trials that were held against Anne in Switzerland and in France. Uh, there were actually two trials in France. One was. Um, was a um, one a call, uh, it was called an honor court and it was put together by the members of the French resistance her fellow members and they tried her and it's the only um, uh, legal hearing in which which she attended herself and <clears throat> and she claimed and she admitted and she confessed that she had been bewitched by Carmen Mori so uh, 
uh, and which he had, which he did in those uh, uh, during that period, um, is horrifying to the extreme. You just joined us. We're talking with John Hemingway, uh, talking about his new book, a fascinating book, "In Full Flight: A Story of Africa and Atonement." So, John Hemingway, you're you have known and Shpuri over many years as a, as a friend, as this saint, quote unquote, in Africa. Now you're learning the the you know, darker past. What what was the effect on you? Well, it 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 still is painful. I mean, I I I must confess, I I I really. Uh, I venerated Anne. She was this um, bigger-than-life figure. She was um, truly beloved amongst the tribal people where she worked. And, you know, I was very proud to call her my friend, and we would often uh, see each other either on the coast or in Nairobi. I saw I went to her farm once or twice, and um, I would take her to dinner in, in Nairobi, and um, and and there were always very interesting dinners because she <clears throat> she kind of r- ruled the roost. <clears throat> she would um, uh, virtually order for me. She would select the wine, and she would set the um, the agenda for the conversation. It was <clears throat> it was um, uh, dazzling in its um, in its effect. I mean, she was just wonderful. I mean, very strong willed and and uh, amusing, and uh, I loved her and and. Uh, um, and so the effect of discovering what had happened was virtually unreal to me. I, I, I still have trouble digesting it all, because essentially what I discovered was a, <clears throat> a woman who had been a saint for 50 years of her, her life and had been a monster for four. And, um, and that's the problem that I struggle with to this day. But... I thought it was so important um, that I had to put it down in this book. Uh, a lot of people in Kenya, especially, um, believe that the only part of her life that was worth talking about were her glory days in Kenya. <clears throat> and and in, in looking and, and going back and struggling with this, I've uh, come to the conclusion that if th- there are very few fa- saints who achieve sanctum, um, sanctity, by um, a life that um, embarked uh, uh, with good deeds starting at the beginning. In other words, um, it's, the, the lives of saints are not straight lines. Um, and Anne was certainly... Uh, did not live a straight line. She lived a life of one of the most extravagantly uh, large arcs of all times. And, and, and that arc is what actually, I believe, um, informs us as to what it is to be a human being. I believe that we have a little bit of Anne in all of us. We have a little bit of a, of a past that we'd like to forget, <clears throat> and um, and and a lot of the good we'd like to be remembered by. Um, and uh, had all of that in spades. And, um, I mean, her story is like no one else's, at least in my, in my life experience. And so I think she informs us about 
who we are. And and uh, and so I, I guess it's that story that that I've been <clears throat> tormented tormented by, <clears throat> tortured by, and um, and and in a way, and I hate to use this word, enchanted by, because um, she did something that very very few people um, can do. Um, and um, I, I, I just think that's an astounding feat. Um, and I, I think it tells us a lot about who we are today. And it, it tells us about how we can recover. Um, and, and the question is, did she recover? Well, um, I, I still can't say. Hmm. Um, I, I think that I will leave that issue to theologians, um, whether you can atone for um, high crimes in your life uh, by doing good. I, I still don't know. I do know that you have to try, and I do know that Anne tried in the most remarkable way, in total silence, and I believe um, at, at great peril to herself. I think she lived a very uncomfortable life even though she gave, she presented herself as one of the most satisfied people of all times. In fact, I don't think she was anywhere near that. Let's take another break when we come back more. Um, and I want to get to her, you know, I think it's pretty clear what her motives were, what drove her. That wasn't entirely clear to, uh, you know, to friends like John Hemingway. Uh, I just want to quote this, and then we'll talk about it following the break. This is John Hemingway in in an interview with his publisher. Her days in Block 10 were both horrific and recognizable, and matched with her transformation in Africa, resolved into a morality play. Let's talk more about that following this break. The book is In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. The author is John Hemingway. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. It's a challenge for any pianist, and that's what composer Maurice Ravel had in mind. When he wrote Gaspard de la Nuit, Ravel was trying to make it the most difficult piano music ever written, perhaps even unplayable. Find out if it's unplayable or not on the next performance today from APM. Tonight at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Whether hiking the wind caves or crimson trails in Cache Valley or floating down the Green River near Vernal, Utah, Public Radio goes with listeners wherever they go. Your company's message can too. Find out how by calling Utah Public Radio at 435 437-3138. The following Access Utah program was first broadcast in March of this year. Thanks for uh, joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with John Hemingway. He's joining us from his home in uh, Bozeman, Montana. The latest book, a fascinating book, In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. And it's the story of Dr. Ann Shpuri. Uh, who uh, over some five decades treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya uh, as a member of the renowned Flying Doctors Service. And uh, after her death was discovered, uh, John Hemingway uncovers the full story uh, that she had a, a dark past in World War II in the concentration camp Ravensbrook. 
And uh, so that's the uh, that's the the nub of the story. Let me just uh, read again, quoting John Hemingway in an uh, interview with his publisher. Her days in Block 10, talking about Raven's book, were both horrific and recognizable and matched with her transformation in Africa resolved into a morality play. Uh, so uh, I guess for you and it, I, probably for most readers, it does resolve. You you do see now the what drove her. Um, I believe I do. Um, and the what I would have liked to have added to the, all that uh, is that she served virtually as her own judge, jury, and executioner throughout her life. Um, I don't think she slept soundly. I think that she struggled with this. I think she had deep and dark and conflicted memories of, uh, of Ravensbrook. She claimed right up until about one year before she died, she told somebody, a colleague of hers at the Flying Doctor Series, that um, Ravensbrook was inconsequential, that um, nothing really happened and it didn't really affect her life. Um, that was one year before she died, and I believe that was an outrageous lie. And uh, that's the way she she uh, she 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 did this. And it's it's so I'm, I'm, it's so interesting. I reflect on <clears throat> other Nazi war criminals, um, Mengele, um, Bormann, and uh, others who who fled to. Latin America, hid out in Paraguay and Bolivia and Argentina, changed their names and went into hiding in little tiny towns and, and, and had huge cover-up networks. Not Anne. She, uh, uh, we do know she was never allowed to practice medicine in France or in its dependencies. So she went to a British colony. And there she hid out um, with her full name, and in time, she became more and more famous. And she used fame as a cover, um, which, which seems to be um, a, a contradiction in terms. But uh, the more famous she became, the more she could, she could drive the interviews and, um, and she could control the information. And people came to a point where they didn't want to um, challenge her. And it was, I mean, in retrospect, it was an extraordinary uh, protective device. It was camouflage of a completely new, new order. And she was hugely successful. Um, and it would have been totally successful almost up until her death. And then something happened. Um, I don't know if you want to reveal what happened to it. Well, I, 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 yes. I mean, mm. I could tell part of it. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> about about a year and a half before her death, she received a letter from the Swiss ambassador saying that there was um, um, somebody would like to make contact with her, and um, and would she carefully look at this uh, a set of a, a manuscript. Um, and um, and respond to it. Well, there were lots of things in the manuscript, but there uh, there was one um, eighty-page document, and it was a master's thesis from the University of Heidelberg 
by a young woman called Bettina Durer. And Bettina Durer had gone out and had written this paper about how Carmen Mori could have um, had such power, even though she was a prisoner. How did she create the power of, of her life in Block 10? And half the, uh, half the master's thesis is, is dedicated, is, is, um, is also about Anne Spurry. So here it is. Uh, Anne had uh, gathered up all sorts of papers that she stored in that one safe in Sabukia, her, her farmhouse. And um, it's my feeling that, she, that most of the, of the stuff that she had there were testimony favorable to her uh, from the court proceedings. Um, she didn't have anything that was negative, except for that one Crowcast uh, document. And, um, um, and she had that there in case somebody came calling. Well, in effect, Bettina Durer, uh, with this master thesis, came calling one and a half years before she died. And um, I finally tracked down Bettina. It was hard because um, University of, uh, University of Heidelberg doesn't really have an alumni association, as we as, as we know about and that we have so frequently in in, in in U.S. universities. So it was a bit of an operation getting hold of her. Um, and I had a wonderful conversation with her. Um, and she told me, she told me that after d- having this document delivered to Anne in Nairobi, she, um, she didn't know that Anne was still alive. She was unaware of that until one day she picked up the, the morning newspaper over breakfast, and she discovered Anne was very much alive and a famous flying doctor. And it was a loving portrait of, of Anne and all the adventures she, uh, she had in Africa and all the good she was doing. So she immediately got on the phone, got the number for Ansbury, called her in Nairobi, got Anne on the phone, and said, I'm Bettina Durer. I've just written this, this master's thesis about you and Carmen Mori, and I'd love to ask you a few questions. And there was this long pause on the line, and then the phone went click. And that was as close as she got to, uh, to, to um, Ansbury. And that was... And that was the person that Anne had dreaded for 50 years, the person who came calling, who knew what had happened in Block 10. I wonder, uh, you had um, the good fortune to, uh, you found three women who had been in Ravensbrook with Anne Spurry, right? Uh, the, the one that stood out to me was, uh, I think to you as well, was, uh, am I saying this correctly, Louise Laporte? Uh, yeah, Louise Laporte is um, an extraordinary woman. Um, uh, there were three. Uh, two of them lived in Paris, and Louise lived in Bordeaux. And she was a, um, a lung specialist and a family physician there all of her life. And when I got to know her, um, she was in her late 80s. And her testimony, her, the in, in interviews that I had with her, were so compelling that I went back a, a total of four times. And uh, sadly, she's, she died about a year and a half after my last interview. Uh, but in those interviews, uh, 
um, she she told me what it was like serving as a doctor in Block 10 um, under uh, this, this young woman who had been given doctor status by Carmen Mori. Um, and she, she just couldn't believe that here she was, uh, very qualified, and the person who was calling all the shots was a young medical student. Uh, but the young medical student had the protection of Carmen Mori. And uh, she told, uh, told me stories of, of just how extraordinary that combination was and how totally lethal it was. And she struggled um, with, uh, she struggled with everything. She struggled with the, the whole notion of, 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 you know, crime and punishment and, um, and, and forgiveness. Um, I mean, she told one, one story. Uh, first of all, uh, Carmen Mori was a, a real charmer, if she wanted to be. She spoke six languages, and she had apparently a very, very um, um, enchanting alto voice. And she, at one point, wanted to be a singer, uh, much like Marlena Dietrich. And um, and she uh, and the year was uh, 1944. It was just at Christmas, and at this at this time. 800 people a day were being killed by the Germans um, in um, in Ravensbrück, and a great many of those came out of Block 10 with the compliance um, and connivance of Carmen Mori and Anschbury, and and it was uh, and and it was just the the most terrifying time. She tells of a of a of a moment when she sat with a with a woman who was uh, had tuberculosis and had been severely uh, uh, hurt, and um, and she she uh, lay beside her, holding her hands, um, as and 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 having given her as much uh, medication to uh, allay the pain, um, and she lay there with her until she died, and at that very moment, she received a Christmas card. From Anne Spurry and Carmen Mori, and it was um, Anne was quite a passable um, illustrator, and uh, she had illustrated a uh, um, a, a um, jolly snowman with a broom, and um, a couple of other cartoons in it, and it was wishing her a merry Christmas. Uh, and as as Doctor Laporte said, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal, and she. It was so surreal that um, Doctor Laporte kept that Christmas card, and she kept it in a file. And when I was with her, she went to the file, and she brought it out, and I held this document, signed by Anne and Carmen Mori, on literally the worst day of everybody's lives, 1944 Christmas Day, and it sent chills down my back. Wow, wow, that's that's amazing. Just a few minutes left. It's uh, it's interesting to me to contemplate this. Louise Laporte's 
um, you know, the, the decisions she made in Ravensbrook and that, that sent her on a, a much different trajectory than, uh, than Anne Spurry. Um, had Anne Spurry made some different decisions there, she, I guess, might have had uh, the life that Louise Deports had. Louise Deports went on. She's known as a heroine of the resistance, a respectable doctor. She had that kind of a life. Yes, yes. I mean, she was, um, uh, she had all sorts of awards to her name. She was one of the most modest human beings I ever knew. Um, she, when she died, she left instructions. She didn't want to be remembered for anything um, except a, a do- as, a, as a doctor. But she had played a huge role in, um, in, I mean, she kept saying to me, you know, I knew I was going to die. And I just had, had um, I was prepared for it. It was just the way it was going to be. That's what Ravensbrook was. Um, but Anne, Anne just didn't want to die. She didn't want to. She didn't want to uh, to 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 face a uh, a random execution, is the way she put it. And um, and um, Louise or everybody called her Lulu in the camp uh, said, I'm I, I'm prepared to die. And and that was the big difference between herself and and Anne. She said she met a lot of very scared people um, in Ravensbrook, a lot of scared women. But Anne um, took fear to a completely different level when she was in the company of Carmen Mori. Hmm. Do you, uh, this is speculation, I'm sure, on your part, I'll ask you to speculate. Do you think, in the end, uh, Anne Spurry felt like she had paid the debt, atoned? That's that's a major question. Uh, those who were with her at her death in 1999 said she had a smile on her face. Um, I believe the kind of atonement that she had uh, that she had manufactured for herself essentially uh, required her to work right up until the very end. She was never going to allow herself. A break, a um, retirement. Let's say that was not possible for her. She would have to work right up until she died, and in fact, she did that. She was still flying. She was still helping people until a week before her death. So she, in that sense, she had achieved everything she wanted. But I, I, it's pure speculation. I cannot say. Um, all I know is that she didn't have as comfortable a life as most people suspected. I think mm. she struggled. Just have a minute left. You mentioned your uh, the, the book's coming to Kenya. You're you're taking copies over, and uh, um, I I don't know what's that's going to be. Uh, that's going to be an experience for you and and for the people who receive this full story. Yeah, I think it will be, and I was uh, I was hoping to do maybe an event at the Flying Doctors Service, but I was told it was it would have been inappropriate because the uh, there were a lot of old timers there that um, whose sensibilities would have been hurt by this, um, and will will certainly be. And I I think uh, you know I've I've lived a lot of my life in and out of Kenya, and I have uh, many friends there um, who I adore. And I think 
it's quite possible I'm going to lose some friends on the basis of this book, uh, which is the price you pay for investigative journalism of any kind. Um, and I just think that um, uh, I felt compelled to tell this story because I believe that Anne is far more interesting um, in the round, in the whole round of her life, rather than uh, uh, just as a as a, uh, a photograph, as a still shot of her life in Africa. So um, I I made that decision. I I believe in it still. I will always believe in it. And um, and I'm sorry if I'm going to lose some friends over it, but there it is. Well, it's an amazing story. The book is In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. The author, John Hemingway, has uh, joined us from Bozeman, Montana. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi, it's Francis Lamb. Honey, it's great for tea for yogurt and for helping humans to evolve to have big brains? This week, it's the amazing world of bees and how they make our world delicious. That's The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. Sunday morning at 11 here on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Association for Utah Community Health, providing support for health centers throughout Utah, such as Utah Navajo Health System and the 4th Street Clinic. Information available at auch.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.